One way that academia can help make the world better is by engaging in dialogues, not just uh, talking about free speech as listening to people who agree with you, but listening to people who disagree with you. If you believe in the you know, far left uh, agenda, you should engage in dialogues with the far right agenda and try to understand where those people are coming from. And perhaps we can find a common ground. The point is that as of now, social media and uh, potentially AI would just do the opposite. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Join host Sanjay Puri as he explores the dynamic and developing world of artificial intelligence governance. Each episode features deep dives with global leaders at the forefront of regulating AI responsibly, tackling the challenges using AI can bring about head-on and enabling balance without hindering innovation. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Artificial intelligence stands at the forefront of technological evolution, with experts predicting that it could add trillions of dollars to our GDP, but it could also negatively impact our workforce and national security. So how do we regulate it without stifling the innovation that drives the United States and many other countries? Our podcast features insights from various perspectives. We have had industry leaders, government officials, advocacy group leaders. Together, they address pivotal questions that are needed to create practical legislation. I'm very excited to have Professor Avi Loeb with us today. He's a professor of science at Harvard University. Professor Loeb is also the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation within the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And he also serves as the head of the Galileo Project, and he has been the longest-serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, besides being a prolific author. I invited him on this show as we want to have as many different voices as possible that can create practical and democratic legislation, and having a voice from an astrophysicist is also important. Besides, these days, it seems like every tech billionaire, AI billionaire, wants to take us to space, so let's get his perspective too. Welcome, Professor. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Regulating AI podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be there. Wonderful. Professor, for our audience, can you share a little bit about your background, your role at Harvard University, especially in the context of the Galileo and the Space Initiative? Yeah, I was born on a farm and was very much connected to nature. And as a result, I don't have any footprint on social media because I value new knowledge about nature more than likes on social media. And sometimes they align, but very often they don't because people have ulterior motives. And, uh, you know, it's much more rewarding to learn about the reality that we all share, which is the job of a physicist. And I'm a physicist of a special type, an astrophysicist, looking at the big picture of the cosmos. And I'm practicing it. I wrote more than a thousand papers about it. And I'm really fascinating to study our cosmic roots. Where did we start from? There was a big bang, but it took a hundred million years for the first stars and galaxies to form. So that was my first research area when not many people were interested. And now we have images from the Webb telescope that were actually celebrated in the White House a year and a half ago. 
And altogether, you know, it's really exciting to learn how everything we see around us started. And we can observe the universe at early times because it took light some time to reach us from great distances. And so we can see images of the universe when it was young. Another topic that I focused on is the black holes. They are distortions of space and time that are the most extreme that we know about and fascinating to study. So I was the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative, and we obtained the first image of a black hole, which looked like a silhouette, some shadow on the background of illumination from hot gas behind it. And um, other than that, in recent times, you know, over the past five years, I was really interested in the question of whether we are alone or do we have a neighbor out there? And traditionally, answering this question was thought to be through a search for radio signals, which is basically just like waiting for a phone call at home. Uh, you can wait forever and you will not hear any call, but there is a completely different approach, which is searching for objects that are in our backyard, near our mailbox, uh, that someone might have sent a long time ago. And that's a new frontier that I'm exploring with the Galileo project that I'm leading. And we went to the Pacific Ocean uh, half a year ago. We found the materials from the first interstellar object that collided with Earth, a meteor. And we are studying them now and getting results. And we're also looking at the sky for unusual objects that are not human-made or uh, natural, like birds. And so this has been my interest in recent years. And uh, I'm very much hopeful that in the coming years, long before I die, we will know the answer to whether we have a neighbor, because that will inspire us to do better. And I should say, you know, it's most likely that if we are visited, it will be by AI, artificial intelligence, rather than biological creatures, because the travel across interstellar distances takes a long time and uh, there are cosmic rays, energetic particles that would damage every cell in our body over a period of years. So it's really difficult to imagine survival over thousands of years that it takes to make the journey for biological creatures. Well, you have an amazing background and I, we could spend hours talking on it, but that could be probably be another different kind of podcast. Our podcast is about AI and how do we sensibly regulate it. So I'm going to ask you to you know, use your expertise and give your perspective because our mission is to bring many different perspectives, not just a few. And we have legislators, you know, we've had senators, members of Congress, and we are going global. And we take your perspectives and give them that. So Professor, in your view, what do you see as the biggest risk from artificial intelligence that needs to be regulated? Right. So the biggest risk is that they, it could be unpredictable. And we know that because humans are very often unpredictable. So how do we deal with that? Well, there is a legal system that basically states what would be the consequences of a person misbehaving. Okay. We can't forecast. Uh, what a person would do. But if a person does something that damages society in one way or another, uh, we have a response to that and that discourages other individuals from doing the same. And that's the way we deal with intelligent systems that we cannot really predict. 
And, you know, as a physicist, I deal very often in systems that we can forecast. We have the laws of physics. We have equations that tell us how electrons, atoms, particles in general behave. And they never break those laws, you know, in difference from the legal system of humans where the laws are being broken all the time. The laws of physics are are not broken. And that's a very different mindset. But when dealing with intelligent systems, you know, laws are broken. And we know that from humans, and we should apply the same approach to AI. And here is the way I think of it. I mean, it may well be that as of now, we can sort of tame this beast. We can pretty much figure out how to train it in a way that will not be harmful. But, you know, in the long run, if it's really intelligent, just like humans, we won't be able to forecast its capabilities and how risky it is to society. So how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, the way we deal with children. Okay, so you can think of the education system as being designed to bring children to the realization of what are the values that we appreciate and make them behave better than if they were exposed to all the criminals on the street. You know, we don't let them go out to the street at darkness and just learn how to behave from that. And I should say right now, AI systems are trained on the internet and there are lots of dark corners on the internet. We don't want AI systems to replicate misbehavior on the internet that could be damaging to society. You know, we know of many of these risks that amplify hate, amplify tribalism, where people subscribe to tribes and hate others from another tribe. We want to moderate those tendencies. So the way I think of it is just like the education system. We need to train AI on a limited data set that we believe is more in line with our values. Okay, that's in terms of training. But even with good training, we all know about kids that grew up in good homes and then became criminals. So what do we do about that? Well, who do we blame? If we are dealing with a system that is relatively young, that just came out from the training set and is damaging society in one way or another, we should blame the trainers, those that manufacture the AI system. The way that we blame parents for what the kids are doing, if they destroy something in a store, you know, and the kid is underage, then obviously the parents take responsibility. But at some point, kids become adult, and then they uh, are responsible for what they are doing. So at that point, we should take AI systems out of operation if they're damaging to society. Rather than blame the makers, we should blame the AI system for any crime or any damage that it does to society, and there needs to be laws about that. And what it means is taking it out of production or out of, you know, operation, the way we take cars that cause the accidents. And so my approach to intelligent systems would be similar to people. So, Professor, you covered a lot of ground in that thing. So I'll try to unpack it. One concern you have is that the data it is training, as you said, you talked about tribalism, hate, etc., and that could come back in, whether it's in terms of discrimination, fermenting, you know, continued hate. 
So that's an area of concern for you that regulators, legislators should be looking at. And you know, there are over 100 bills in Congress pending. A couple of them kind of relate to that. The other thing you kind of talked about is this whole issue of children, if children misbehave, should we blame parents, et cetera? That gets into a tricky area of liability. So let's say there is, you know, somebody creates this AI system, this large language model. So if there is some problem that is generated or some serious issue that is done, who in your view is liable? You talked about the parent. Now, the parent is the software company. Is it the user? Is it the installer? Where do you think, or is it all of the above? Well, it depends on the crime. So if you can relate the crime to the way this AI system was produced in the first place, then you blame the manufacturer. Just the way, you know, that you blame a car maker for mishaps, accidents that are clearly related to the ability of the car to maneuver or to have that accident. But if it has to do with the operator, then you blame the driver, okay? And we just need to have a legal system that reflects that. So, I mean, altogether, I don't think these decisions are new. I mean, it's just like any other system that we deal with, except now it's intelligent, it's not fully predictive. Whereas in the past, you know, if a car has an engine that has a fault, it's physical and we could easily trace it. Whereas now it's, you know, it's more complicated, but not more complicated than humans, I would argue. And therefore, you know, we should be able to deal with it in terms of liability in the legal system. The other thing I should say is, uh, so far we discussed what happens within a single nation, within a society, let's say America, the United States. But you can imagine that these tools will be used for warfare, for, you know, one nation manipulating another nation or spying on another nation or using it as a weapon. And then, of course, the legal system does not apply to another system. And that has to do with national security, of course. So one thing to keep in mind is, even if we restrict corporations to abide by a certain set of rules, we won't be able to restrict other governments of adversarial countries to not follow these rules. And that is a serious issue because for that, you need international treaties. Uh, The way that, you know, atomic uh, weapons were dealt with, you need uh, all nations to agree not to go beyond a certain red line. And if they do, there will be consequences. So that I leave to international negotiations. So you touched on another very important point. That's a discussion that is kind of going on. You're talking about something like the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy, you know, that regulates nuclear weapons, production of nuclear. And there are some experts who have suggested an agency like that. Now, in the world that we live in, it'll be important to get buy-in from, so to speak, everybody. When President Xi came this time to California, President Biden had a conversation with him about, you know, AI. But obviously, there are other parties in the world today that we live in who might and might not. So you raise an interesting point. But in your view, is AI got the same elements of risk as a nuclear weapon or even more? It could. 
because first of all, it could activate uh, nuclear weapons if you get uh, penetrate into the system of another nation. But it, yeah, it could cause a lot of disruption. And there is a fundamental question of whether polarization within the United States is manipulated by other nations and whether we are not even noticing it because we are naive. And in the future, it would be much easier than uh, in the context of social media that already uh, created some turmoil and you can see what's going on right now. And so I do think that the government needs to think about this in two separate lanes. One is within the nation, and that's just like the legal system we have, and that's easier to enforce with the rules that we can set. But uh, internationally, it needs to be part of the conversation among nations and an agreement that if a bad player does not adhere to these rules, there will be implications. And if sufficiently large number of major nations agree to that, then of course you can have terrorist organizations or small nations violating those rules, but they would suffer the consequences. There need to be a, a clear understanding that if you violate a certain set of rules and you can demonstrate that that nation violated them, there will be consequences. Professor, you touched on another point that is making me bring up an issue of internal disinformation. We have an election here coming up, and it's not just United States. 60 democracies are going to go to polls this year. Some fairly large ones like India, we have uh, many other countries. And the fear right now is because it's so easy for deep fakes and others, and we already have seen that in the U.S., and there are some bills out there and President Biden's executive order also touched on it. And from my conversations with members of Congress, they have said that this would be one of the key things that they would be taking up this year. What is your thought? I mean, are, do, are you concerned about what can happen externally, internally, in terms of, you talk about polarization. I mean, that's one of the means of polarizing people is through this, Professor. Yeah, I'm very worried about that. I think the biggest risk that the, our nation faces is tribalism and hate because there is no feedback loop. If you imagine two tribes, let's say Democrats and Republicans that subscribe to their own news, their own information and their own narratives and both sides say that you can't really listen to the other side because they, are, they all uh, are people that uh, you cannot relate to but the truth of the matter is that you don't converse with them. You just uh, surround yourself with like-minded people. This is a big problem because you break the feedback loop where if you make some wrong statements, nobody corrects you because you are surrounded by people that think like you. And that could lead to civil war, you know, or some uh, big disruption of society within the next election, irrespective of what the outcome is. One way or another, part of society may be dissatisfied, will hate the other part, and that hate would translate to violence. And I'm really worried about that. I think it's looming and it could be amplified by adversarial nations that want to increase the flames within society. Now, what can we do to suppress it? Well, one thing is to engage in dialogues among people who disagree, that do not share the same view. And I must say, I'm very disappointed by what's happening right now at Harvard University because part of the problems that brought us to the turmoil recently were the president of Harvard stepped down and 
as of now, freedom of speech is not really followed in the way that, uh, you know, is, should be followed. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that this is a result of politics, the narratives of politics entering our campus. And of course, one way that academia can help make the world better is by engaging in dialogues, not just uh, talking about free speech as listening to people who agree with you, but listening to people who disagree with you. If you believe in the you know, far left agenda, you should engage in dialogues with the far right agenda and try to understand where those people are coming from. And perhaps we can find a common ground. The point is that as of now, social media and potentially AI would just do the opposite. And we need to, as part of our national security, I would argue, we need to change the algorithms. So you would suggest that our legislators do something about this, right, Professor? Not just legislators. I suggest that the next president of Harvard University will do something about that, that the corporation of Harvard, the provost of Harvard will work towards that future. You know, these are really serious problems. And when I look at what courses are being taught at Harvard, you know, regarding AI, you know, I see very little. I, I mean, I see a course that, you know, talks about how to solve differential equations, a course that shows how to use chat GPT. But to me, the most important courses are not being offered. And these are courses that talk about the ethics of AI and how to make AI a tool that would stabilize society rather than disrupt it. And what I tell philosophers, people in the humanities often, and they don't listen, is that instead of studying the ancient Greeks that had no computers, philosophers should study the future, AI, the impact, you know, how to combine AI with ethical rules that we believe in. That's humanities of the future rather than humanities of the past. And unfortunately, they are not being offered in the course list that uh, I see. Professor, you touched on a point and this, all the polls that we see coming out show that there's a high level of concern in the general public about artificial intelligence. How do you think we can involve the general public in discussions about AI regulations to make sure there are diverse perspectives that are concerned? And what role can education, you are an educator, can they play in this process, Professor? Right. So I think it should be done by trial and error the way we do with other technological advances in the sense that when uh, self-driving cars were brought to the scene, you know, uh, at first, of course, uh, there were some tests of those self-driving cars by Tesla, for example, and or other companies. But then eventually, you know, they went to the public domain. And then, of course, you need a feedback loop. You need to see if they trigger any damages that were not anticipated by the company. And so what we need is a monitoring system that uh, looks at the interaction of the product with society, in this case, AI. And if it notices major disruptions or, or uh, accidents, they should there should be a report back uh, to a government organization that does the monitoring. And then Either if, if it's uh, relatively minor, alerts the company or disciplines the company, punishes the company if it's a major disruption. 
Looking to make the most out of AI advancements and innovation? Visit regulatingai.org to learn more about how best to optimize the use and integration of AI. And sign up for the Regulating AI newsletter to keep up to date with the latest in AI governance and regulation. That's a pretty helpful feedback. Professor, just shifting a little to astronomy, how is AI currently being utilized in the field of astronomy and what impact has it had on research and exploration, Professor? Well, actually, machine learning and AI appear quite prominently in uh, current papers, scientific papers uh, in astronomy because we very often have large data sets. So if you're looking for patterns within a huge data set, the computer is much better equipped to search for that. And moreover, it can find the anomalous things that are unusual. And we are now uh, in this age of uh, astronomy where huge data sets are being uh, developed. And for example, there would be very soon, uh, within a year or so, a huge flood of data from the Rubin Observatory in Chile that would survey the southern sky every four days with a camera that has 3.2 billion pixels. And uh, then you can look for many different possible objects in the sky. And uh, AI will be instrumental for that. So people are already uh, preparing uh, machine learning algorithms that would know how to identify sources of interest. But I'm most curious about the things that we haven't expected, things that fall outside what we already know. And I think AI will play a bigger and bigger role. The most important futuristic question is whether AI could do the science. In other words, look at the data and say, you know, there seem to be some regularity in it. There seem to be some physical law. The way that scientists do when they discover something really new. And besides digesting the data, whether the AI could do abstraction and come up with physical laws, you know, that remains to be seen. I think it would be fantastic. I have no issue of taking a vacation rather than doing the hard work of science. If the AI system can do better than me, I have no inferiority complex. I'm very proud of any technological kids that we might have the same way that I'm proud of my daughters. You know, they sometimes do much better than I do on some tasks. And rather than be jealous or uh, vindicative of saying, no, I always want humans to be in charge of this or that task, I would be happy if AI can do it better. And especially in space, I should say, we've never sent an AI system to space as of now. And I, I see a big role that AI can play in space because it could go for long distances. And the good thing about AI, it would make its own decisions without waiting for guidance from engineers in the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, the way that uh, currently we operate, for example, the Perseverance rover on Mars. So in the future, I think instruments will have their own brain, AI, they could make decisions and just send a postcard home on Earth. Every now and then, not asking what to do, but actually telling Earthlings what that uh, instrument uh, found and what, what are the most important. So it would save on information transfer and, and, and the rate of data transfer that just the way, you know, when your kids leave home, they don't report about each and every incident they have because they can decide for themselves. And then they report about the most exciting things. 
that's the way I, I see explorations in the future in space. Wow. So maybe a robot, intelligent robot going out there. That's, that's a very interesting point. Professor, one of the big concerns, and I started my introduction with that, is there are a lot of predictions that there could be serious job losses because, as you just said, the routine stuff can be done. You are not afraid of that, but there are a lot of people, McKinsey and others, have come up with that, hey, there could be 30% job losses. What role do you think, I mean, educational institutions or others can do to create a workforce, whether it's reskilling, not just on a technological level, but also ethically conscious. Because you talk, you talked about polarization. If something like that happens, it kind of creates even a bigger divide, uh, Professor. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, so there are two aspects to it. One is economical, financial. And obviously, the economy needs to adjust to those changes. And the way to do that is by creating new jobs, okay? Given the fact that some jobs are being taken, we should redefine other jobs. And of course, the issue of income, you know, if you imagine a utopian future where the machines will do everything we are doing now for us, you know, you could redistribute wealth in a different way, but that's really for the very distant future. As in the immediate future, what we need is to redefine new jobs, given that other jobs were taken, and make sure that the people can get compensated uh, in a fair way, uh, given that the tasks are now new and different. And you can always find new tasks. Uh, you know, given the machine is doing something, you want to do beyond that and give it to people. Okay, so that uh, is the first aspect, the aspect of financial or economic implications. But there is, of course, the second uh, part, which is maintaining human dignity and the psychological impact of the machine doing better than humans on many tasks. I don't see that as a threat because, you know, we shouldn't be too attached to our ego. We can still play chess, even if computers do it better than us, because we will enjoy doing it. We can still write essays and plays just for the fun of it. There would be, a, a, of course, uh, the question of how to evaluate uh, uh, jobs done by people, because when a student uh, delivers an essay, then we have to figure out whether it was done by the machine or the student. And uh, it's Harvard, it's not a big deal right now because everyone gets an A. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, Professor, one of the big concerns in Washington with a lot of the legislators I talk, and it stems from social media. You see five or six companies kind of dominate globally, the social media, you know, the digital town square, at least most countries except China. The fear is that that could happen with AI too. And AI is much more transformative. What are your thoughts? And is there something regulators can do, legislators can do to avoid the mistakes of what happened with social media? What would be your advice? Yeah, definitely. First of all, the algorithm, uh, the way it promotes attention and uh, we want uh, the attention to be distributed in a way that is constructive, not uh, com combative or and not through hate, but rather through love. I mean, that's easy to say, but how do you do that? You can see what is being amplified and suppress the negative while highlighting the positive so that we encourage people to work together, to, to engage in dialogue, even with those who disagree with you, but the dialogue should be constructive. And 
So how to do that is an art, of course, and it's the same art as we exercise when we educate kids. Kids go in, get into quarrels. They, there is a, a lot of hate in school uh, that teachers have to engage with. And so in the same way, it's as challenging as educating kids. That's what I would say. So the education department, for example, could have a component that has to do with AI and therefore, because it affects the psyche of, of children and it's as important as having good teachers. We need to monitor. You can have AI systems monitoring social media to make sure that they operate properly. And most importantly, you don't want bots to dominate. Uh, so you need to identify people as the players and not allow uh, virtual people to drive the conversation. No, that's helpful. Professor, in your role, you likely collaborate with experts from many different fields. How important do you think is interdisciplinary collaboration and addressing the complex challenges that AI poses? And you think uh, policymakers can encourage such collaboration? I think it's extremely important. I think there needs to be a redefinition of the humanities instead of, as I said, dealing with ancient Greeks, Greek philosophers, I have nothing against them. It's just that they didn't have computers back then. And so we have to rethink the humanities. A lot of people say the humanities are less relevant today. I don't think so. They are very relevant as to shaping AI and its interaction with society. We just need to engage in that and it's not being done right now. So in terms of interdisciplinary work, what could be more interdisciplinary than a collaboration between the humanities and the hard sciences in the context of AI. And um, I think psychologists obviously are extremely valuable because we are dealing with intelligent systems. Physicists deal with dumb systems, particles that don't have free will, don't have, they follow the laws of physics. I think psychologists are better equipped to dealing with unpredictable systems and they should be engaged in shaping the future of AI. So indeed, you know, this is a new challenge, both academically and in society. And it's definitely interdisciplinary. We need to bring all the power we have to make it serve society rather than threaten society. Thanks about that. Uh, Professor, I wanted to ask you one final question, knowing how busy you are. Professor, should companies have a legal duty to disclose when they are using AI? Yes, I do believe so, because just like any other technology, you know, it brings risks and we need to be transparent about that. Well, that's very helpful, Professor. We've covered so much ground. We covered elections, disinformation, tribalism, astrophysics, particles. I could spend hours talking to you about this, but we really appreciate it and we'd love to have you back again. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Just keep in mind that what happens on Earth is just a small piece of the big picture. There is much more real estate out there in between the stars. I think we forget that sometimes, but thank you for reminding us, Professor. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Regulating AI Innovate Responsibly podcast. You'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review.